All right, well, we're going to be looking, as we were last week, at Colossians chapter 3, this time particularly what it says about Christian husbands, wives, fathers and parents and children. And next week we're going to be looking at what it says about slaves. Now, you can imagine, can't you, that these verses in Colossians raise up all kinds of issues for us. And I imagine that there'll be a number of different reactions uh, that we have to these verses. Certainly, in our day and age, these parts of the Bible, I think, represent a pretty massive cultural cringe. Uh, We live in a world where people pretty much think that it's the personal right of each individual to think and be and do and speak just as they feel that they want to. Uh, Self-autonomy is a very strong value of our age. It's been growing so. And so, of course, we can determine our own identities, our sexual identity, our gender identity, all sorts of other aspects of who we are should be self-determined, not laid upon us. Uh, And these days, of course, even when children uh, are born, uh, the birth certificates that are coming out now are speaking about the gender assigned at birth. Not the gender in which they were born, but the gender that people will choose to assign to that particular child. Now, it's in that world, I think, that to hear things that are speaking about a characteristic of relationship between a husband and a wife, uh, or between children and their parents, or vice versa, and particularly next week when we get into talking about slaves and masters, there is a huge cultural cringe. And I'd imagine, as the passages were being read, that for some of us, we've been feeling that already this afternoon. But I think it's even worse than this, because there has been, very sadly, a history of of abuse and excuse when it comes to this teaching from the Scriptures. Not just from here, but from Ephesians, from 1 Corinthians, from 1 Peter, from other parts of the Bible, men have used these verses for their self-interest and the abuse of others. And one of the sad realities that we've got to come to grips with is that God's word gets twisted and used for selfish purposes. And when we come to look at a passage like this, it's really hard to distinguish, I think, between what's been abused and used selfishly and what's been accepted and used graciously. And we need to keep that in mind, I think, as we work out how to understand and work through these things. But if I can speak personally, I think one of the hardest reasons that we struggle with passages like this is our own personal failure. I feel the sense of that. I can't bluff at all today because you can check anything with Fiona. Um, And the reality is that when it comes to family life, whether it's being a child to my parents, whether it's being a husband to my wife or a father to my children, it's in these relationships, these really key relationships, that I can see some of my greatest failures as a Christian. It's in this context that I think we often see ourselves in our raw, ugly states. In fact, I think, having spoken with people about these sorts of things over many years, the majority of us can probably say that we've been at our worst with the people that we love the most. 
And so when we come to a passage like this, there's all these things that are going on, cultural things, historical things, and personal things, let alone any exegetical things. That means understanding what the passage is actually saying. But there is some exegetical stuff that is coming out of the Bible that I think we need to look at carefully because for the most part, we hear passages like this in a topical talk about marriage or family. And of course, there's one context where you get these passages more than other contexts, and that happens to be at weddings. And over the last few years, I've been at a number of weddings where this passage has been read, or a similar one from Ephesians or maybe 1 Peter, and we get to these verses, and I've heard people snicker and cringe audibly and physically at the things that are being said. But what we're going to do now is not have a talk on marriage and parenting. What we're going to have now is a talk on Colossians. Colossians chapter 3. And I hope that by putting it back into its context, these things will actually be far more profound and helpful than we ever realised previously. Well, to put it into context, one of the key verses that we looked at, in fact, we devoted a whole week just to two verses, were in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Steve Kovetz was speaking on that week, if you want to think back to it. These are the verses. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. These two verses are something like a hinge or the centrepiece for Colossians. They look back at what Christ has done, at the relationship that we now have with Christ, and we're to grow into that relationship and up in that relationship. And we need to understand that what he's working out now in the second half of this letter is a whole range of aspects to Christian living. That is, because we've come to Christ, we've received forgiveness and new life in Christ, we've died with him, we've been raised with him, our new life is to be shaped by him and with thanksgiving. Now, let's look then at verses 18 to 21 in their immediate context. Because why I wanted the whole of Colossians 3 to be read is to, so that you might see that verse 18 comes directly after verse 17. You might go, duh, but let's see what it says in verse 17. In fact, I'll go back to verse 15 and read it. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. We see in these verses, particularly verse 17, which you'll notice I've put in bold, that the scope of the Christian life, in other words, what gets affected by a relationship with Christ is everything. Nothing is out of bounds. When we come to Christ, everything about who we are, every relationship that we have, every thought that goes into our minds, every word that comes out of our mouths, every action that we do, 
is to be shaped by our relationship with Jesus. So the whole of our lives fit into the scope of what it is to be a follower of Jesus. And he says, whatever you do, word or deed, do it all in the name of Jesus. That is, for the reputation of Jesus. Giving thanks to God the Father through him. So the first thing we need to recognise is that Paul's wanting to address the whole scope of the Christian life. Nothing's out of bounds. Secondly, we see, I think, when we look at these verses, very clearly the focus of the Christian life. The focus of the Christian life is, unsurprisingly, to be Christ. After all, it's the Christian life, the Christian life. It's new life in Christ. Christ is to be the focus. As we look backwards, it's in Christ's death and resurrection. As we look forward, it's our hope of being in eternity with Christ. As we look around about us now, we are in Christ, we're connected to others who are in Christ, and we are to be living and speaking in the name of Christ in everything that we do. So it's not about us. It's not even fundamentally this passage about marriage or about parenting. It's about Christ. Christ has to be the centre. Now, that might seem, again, like a fairly obvious statement to make, but I think so many of our problems when it comes to thinking about married life and family life is that we haven't grasped this reality that it should be fundamentally all about Christ. And so the question that we need to ask, first and foremost, is not what's best for my wife or best for my husband or best for my parents or best for my children, as important as that is. And it's certainly more important to ask that than what's best for me. But asking what's best for them is only a second best question. We need to be asking what's best for Christ. Christ is to be at the centre. And not only is he to be the focus of the Christian life, but when you look at the manner of the Christian life, you see again that it's all about Christ. So in verse 15, he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Now, I want to emphasise a word here because I've read over this verse again and again and again without realising the significance of this word. Let the peace of Christ, I've probably been thinking, just be in your heart, right? Dwell in your heart. Feel at peace in your heart. Have Christ in your heart. Feel good about things because of what Christ has done. But it doesn't say that. And as I've looked at this closely, what it says is let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts or preside in your hearts or manage your heart, rule over your heart. In other words, let the peace of Christ be the number one thing. And peace in the context of what we've been seeing has to do with relationships. He's talked about not getting angry and not using our words in a in a hurtful way towards others. He's spoken about not using one another and not being involved in sexual immorality and so on. See, he's speaking about living as Christ in our relationships. So let the peace of Christ, which is about reconciling people, let that rule in your hearts, and that will have a big outworking when it comes to husbands, wives, parents, children. But secondly, he says, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach one another and admonish one another in your singing and in your speaking. 
You see, God's manner for the Christian life is that his word, the word of the gospel of Jesus, actually rules over our lives and our decisions and our values and our choices. And that we take that and we encourage each other in Christian fellowship with that word of Christ. So we speak God's word to each other. We remind each other of the gospel. We, we put our arm around one another and we say, you know, it's best to have Christ as number one. We, we need that encouragement. And not only is the manner of the Christian life with Christ's name at the centre, I pointed this out last week, but I'll do it again. In each of these three verses, 15, 16 and 17, he says, and be thankful with gratitude in your hearts, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So Christ at the centre and grateful hearts, being thankful for all that we have from Christ. Now let's talk a little bit about husbands and wives as an outworking of what it is to be Christian. And so I'm going to pick up on a few things. If you've got the outline, it's probably worth keeping open because it's got the Bible printed there. But also I've, I've chucked down a few more notes than usual uh, in the outline that you might like to uh, just follow along with. I'm going to pick up on some key ideas. Uh, now, I know it's probably... Uh, Better for me to start with husbands, but I'm going to follow the biblical order. All right, so uh, wives get mentioned first. Wives submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. The first thing that I want to say, you mightn't even think about, but I'll say it out loud. I'm confident of speaking about wives and husbands, not women and men. It's not speaking about all women to all men. That's the same word in the Greek for woman and wife and man and husband. But the context, I think, makes it clear he's talking about husbands and wives. Secondly, he says, submit yourselves to your husband as is fitting in the Lord. So the key idea here has to do with submission. And submission is not a foreign idea for a Christian. Jesus, remember we were looking at Mark's gospel. Uh, was it last year? And we saw that the Son of Man did not come to be served by others. He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to be subordinate to the needs of others. And in probably the most famous statement about Jesus' submission, in Philippians chapter 2, it says that Jesus who in very nature was God, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, becoming a human, becoming a servant, dying and dying on a cross for our sakes. So the picture that we've got of Christ is of one who submits. He submits to God his Father to do his will, but he submits his interests to yours and to mine. Jesus does so by going to the cross. He says, I would rather die than see you unforgiven for eternity. So if you want a model of submission, then look to Jesus. Jesus gives us a picture of what it looks like. 
And it's really, fundamentally, about seeking the eternal good of others. And I take it, that's what a Christian woman in a marriage relationship will want to do. To seek the eternal good of her husband. To submit herself to that interest. And we see here that this is fitting in the Lord. I think that's just another way of saying this is how it ought to be for one who is in Jesus. Because this is the very way that Jesus relates. This is a good way to be relating. And of course, that gives us some guidance. Because there won't be a call to submit that will be leading to behaviour that will be contrary to what pleases Christ. Let me try and put that a little bit more succinctly. The wife is not called to be disobedient to Jesus. So in submitting her interests to those of her husband, it needs to be in honouring Christ and in seeking his welfare. Secondly, we need to understand here that this is a voluntary decision of the wife. Uh, it doesn't read like this. Husbands, make sure your wives submit to you. It's not the way it gets put. Wives, make sure your husband loves you. It's not the way it gets put. Each of these sections are written to the individuals themselves. Wives are to submit because that's the fitting Christian way and they are to do that voluntarily. And there is no sense in any of this that for her to do so is because she is somehow um, inferior or inadequate. No, there is an equality between the husband and the wife in Christ. In 1 Peter chapter 3, they are described as fellow heirs together. The other thing that I want us to see in this, and by putting it back into the context of Colossians chapter 3, come back with me to verses 12 to 14. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion Kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. What do these words mean? Well, put other people before yourself. Submit your interests to the interests of others. Treat them as more important. Do things for their sake. And at the heart of that, verse 13, bear with each other and forgive one another. And if any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these things, put on the virtue of love. I take it when it comes to wives submitting to their husbands, it's going to require forgiveness. The wife will need to be willing to forgive her husband. To have a posture, a stance of not wanting uh, harm, not wanting to cause evil, but wanting what is in his best interests. And if he's not treated her in that way, then it might require forgiveness. I think any honesty would show us that every relationship is going to require forgiveness. 
Now, in saying all this, let me say what I'm not saying. I don't think the scriptures are saying the wife is to be a doormat. Nor do I think it's saying that she needs to stay there and put up with any evil behaviour from her husband. I don't think it is in any sense an excuse for abuse uh, or that the wife is being called upon to keep herself in harm's way or the children in harm's way because of the marriage relationship. Because if she is to submit to him as is fitting to the Lord, then her interest will be that he comes to live in a right relationship with the Lord as well. And she won't be able to feed and enhance his ungodly, abusive behaviour. You might want to pick up on some of those things when we have questions. Husbands, well, husbands are called to love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Love is the focus here. And again, if you want to understand where you see love most clearly, then look to Jesus. This is love, that God should not spare his only son for us. Christ's love on the cross compels us. It is the love of Christ which shapes and, and gives us new life and life to the full. And so if you want to know how the husband is to live towards his wife, then look to Jesus. Now, Colossians, in some ways, seems to be a shortened version of Ephesians in this passage. In fact, so much of the structure of Ephesians and Colossians is the same. And in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he spells out what this love will look like. And he gives the picture of Jesus. And I'd like to read you just a little bit from Ephesians chapter 5, because this is what he says to the Christian husband. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own body. You see, the picture of Christ's love for the church is that he was willing to give up his life and did so for the sake of saving the church. Husbands, that's what we're called to. We're called to give up our lives for the sake of our wives. And if we are thinking this through as to what it means to be in Christ, then our desire will be for our wives' salvation, for her growth in godliness for her maturity in Christ. We do this as co-heirs in Christ. The husband is called to love his wife and the wife is called to submit to her husband. And when you look at the two things together, it's a beautiful picture of unity because the wife puts her husband first by submitting her interests to his. And the husband puts her interests first by laying down his life for her. 
We also see, I think, a picture of gentleness. The husband is called here not to be harsh with his wife, or not to be embittered towards his wife. When you look at this in the context, there's a bit that's already been said, hasn't there? Now you must rid yourself of such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips, don't lie to each other. Here is a picture of what marriage can be like when the husband is harsh towards the wife. And it's an ugly picture. And as I've been looking at this passage during the week, I've searched my own heart and I've seen some times when I've I've been like that. When I've been harsh, when I've been angry, where I've lost control of myself or my tongue. The husbands here are called to love their wives and not to be harsh with them. I think there's another bit in the context here that husbands need to hear. Maybe wives do as well, but speaking to husbands, back in verse 5, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. The husband, if he's to love his wife, is to be sexually pure. That is to have eyes only for her, not to indulge in other relationships in that way, to avoid pornography, not to put himself in situations where he's lusting after others, not to be flirting, not to be leading others on, but to be committed to loving his wife. And of course, we fail. And if we haven't, we will, and so there needs to be forgiveness. Husbands maybe need to seek forgiveness. Maybe wives need to offer forgiveness. And children, well, I'll move a bit more quickly, seeing the children have actually left the room. Our children are to obey their parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Or I think better translated as, for this is pleasing to the Lord in, in the same way as this is fitting in the Lord. This, this is what God wants it to be. God's design for children uh, is that they might obey their parents. Now, first thing to point out here is in verse 18 it says wives submit. It doesn't say wives obey. Here it says children obey. That is, there's an authority that comes with being a parent and children are to obey their parents in, in everything. I think it's it's younger than adult children that are in view in this verse. seems to make much sense. Um, we are always to honour our mother and father, whether they are living in our home or we're living in theirs, whether we're older or younger. But I think this is speaking about younger children. But notice the reason. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. It's not children obey your parents because they are your parents. It's not do this because I told you so. It's not do this despite it seeming a dumb idea. And I think we need to look at what it says to children together with what it says to fathers slash parents. The word is fathers 
in the original. Uh, and I guess fathers bear a particular responsibility here for this, but it's probably a good idea for fathers and mothers to be thinking this through. Don't embitter your children or they will become discouraged. We're not to provoke our children. We're not to exasperate our kids. We're not to frustrate them. We're not to discourage them. We're not to make their life difficult. And as I look back over the years, I can think of so many ways where I've probably done that. Where I've exasperated and provoked and frustrated and, and disturbed my children. Where it might be that there's a, a sense of this isn't fair, this isn't just, this doesn't seem to make sense. When I haven't actually helped them to understand what it is to live as a Christian in a Christian family. And I think if parents are going to love their children so that they're not embittered and that they don't become discouraged, has in mind not only a kind of situation where they may be feeling depressed about the relationship with their parents, but a discouragement that is more profound still, that is a discouragement in being Christian. And the danger is that we can, we can lead our children as parents in such a way that actually gives them a wrong message of what it is to be Christian. One simple way I think that it's subtle but it's dangerous is that we can, we can kind of teach our children that they'll get a good response from us if they reward us with good behaviour. And we want good behaviour, but they need to hear fundamentally that God as Father doesn't reward our good behaviour. He acts in grace towards us despite our bad behaviour. Now there's challenges, aren't there, in the, in the discipline of children alongside a message of God's grace in the Gospel. That they're the paths that we as children are and as parents are called to walk. And let me ask you, fathers and mothers, what, what is your greatest desire for your children? Is it that they might be encouraged in their walk with Christ? Well, I hope so. So let's model and do what we can in the way we live and the way we speak to adorn that message to actually proclaim that Christ, to live in such a way that they will see Jesus as one to be treasured. Well, I think there's a fair bit there to encourage us. There's a fair bit there to uh, probably, I think, cause us uh, to do some talking together, maybe areas where we need to repent, maybe things that we need to change. Uh, maybe attitudes that we need to explore. Uh, I know that as uh, I stand up to speak, uh, we are a diverse group of people. We are, we're younger, we're older, we're, we're single, we're married. We're in second marriages or third marriages. We're divorced, we're widowed, uh, we're engaged. We, we have all kinds of different things going on. Um, and the Word of God addresses us in our own circumstances, but it also 
addresses us in our combined circumstance. And see, if you're a single person and you're hearing words to married people, don't think this, oh, it's not talking about me. Because it is. It's talking about your brother and your sister in Christ that you can be encouraging, that you can be admonishing, that you can be spurring on. And if you're thinking that I don't have any children, it's, it, it's not talking to me. Well, my children have all grown up and I've done my, my worst and there's nothing more I can do. No, it is talking to you. Because we are in a community where there are children around us. And one of the wonderful things about church is that we are more than nuclear families. And we get to invest in each other. And Emily's in the room there with some teens at the moment. And there's some others out the back with some primary school and some preschool kids. And there are others investing in some of your physical children. And there's a shared opportunity here for ministry to each other. But it might be that some of us think, gee, I've made a mistake of some things. Maybe I haven't lived the way I would like to have lived with my partner, with my parents, with my children. And so maybe there is a need to seek forgiveness or to offer forgiveness. Well, we all need to ask for God's help, I think, in this, because it doesn't come easy. So I'm going to lead in prayer, and then I'm going to open it up for a few minutes uh, to take some questions. Heavenly Father, we just ask that you'll speak to our hearts, that you'll encourage us to trust you with your word. Help us to see Jesus clearly. Help us to be so in love with Jesus that it shapes our relationships in marriage, in parenting, uh, in community, in extended families, in church. And we pray that where we need to change, that you'll help us to do that. And we ask that we will be people who encourage rather than discourage. That we'll be people who seek each other's interests rather than our own. And that we'll see things in the light of eternity. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, okay, I'm happy to take some questions for a little bit. We might just need someone to pop out and just say to the kids' leaders that we're just going to go for another 10 to 15 minutes, perhaps. Um, uh, it's okay, someone's popping out. Yeah, look. Um, I guess for a general question, this is uh, yeah, Paul writing about married uh, people, and he writes elsewhere and said. Ephesians and wherever, how much, and not even specifically related to marriage, how much do you think of Paul's personal voice is coming out in the divine inspired scripture? Yeah, good question. How much of Paul's voice is coming out in divinely inspired scripture? All of it. Um, I, I think that the way scripture works is that the Holy Spirit works through the human uh, personality, experience and context, fully. Um, there are times when Paul says, this is me, rather than, um, and there are some things which he seems to be clearly kind of containing uh, or saying, don't think too widely about this. 
But there are other times where he, he builds his argument on something which is very consciously foundational. Uh, it might be as he does in Ephesians where he grounds uh, what he says about the husband and wife in Genesis chapter 2. Uh, and what you've got there is Paul expounding God's plan and purpose for marriage from the very beginning, climaxing in Christ and the church, but then having its impact on Christian marriages. Um, and, yeah, I, I think, so there's a couple of things there. One is see if there are any clues in the passage as to whether this is limited or whether this is something which is more broadly focused. children navigate through this kind of fluidity of thought and, and identity, identity stuff. Um, I think it's an area that has crept up on us at the speed of light. Um, some things move slowly. This has just ramped up exponentially. Um, and two, I think, key ways that it's ramped up, which will both affect our children and younger people's children. Uh, one is the way it's uh, absolutely been thrust in through the media and through film and TV shows and so on. A real agenda there. Um, and the other is the, the impact into schooling. Um, and we, I think, need to be engaged as parents or grandparents in thinking what are the issues that our children and our teenagers are going through in our day and age. Because they won't, but some will be the same, but there'll be some that are just so different to what you and I experienced when we were going through school and when we were watching TV and playing on the, hang on, we didn't have an internet or a smartphone. So there are a lot of things that I think we need to kind of um, equip ourselves with. Uh, I've, I've made a couple of recommendations along the way. Let me suggest a book that's worth looking at by Rebecca McLaughlin. Uh, it's a book called Ten Questions That Every Teen Should Ask and Answer About Christianity. And it looks at a whole range of the things that are just part of our cultural air that we breathe now uh, that people are having to navigate. And if we as Christian parents and leaders don't think about that and understand that, then we won't be in the place to have those intelligent conversations uh, and empathic conversations with our children as they go through 
life on these issues. So I think that is one book that I'd recommend. I know a couple of you have been looking at it. Uh, there are other things out there that are helpful as well. And it would probably do us good to be having some uh, conversational and communal activity as a church to be talking about some of these things. Uh, we can look into doing that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so there's two things that are going on in Scripture. One is to say uh, that man and woman are both made in the image of God. And not only were they both originally made in the image of God, but in Christ they are equal heirs with each other in Christ of eternity. So um, in Galatians... Chapter 3, verse 28, I think it is. So there's no longer male nor female. Um, it's saying that we've all got equal status before God in Christ. That is true. But equal status and standing um, doesn't mean that there has to be um, absolutely symmetrical roles. Um, and it seems to me what the Bible does is it puts us together in different roles and relationships to seek each other's interest uh, in such a way that we create a unity uh, and encourage each other in that unity. And as I unpacked what I thought submission was and what love was, I pointed to Christ as the example in both cases. It's just that I think the women are being asked to think it through from one lens and the men are being asked to look it through from a different lens the gospel shaping both lenses um, and the, the harmony that gets created as you think from those different perspectives is an integral part to Christian marriage. Um, so the, um, the key thing that the husband is called to be to his wife is not uh, to be the authority over her. The key thing that the husband is to be to the wife is to love. And that means dying for her. Even so, so his authority, his headship, if you like, is to be expressed in giving up his life, which is what Jesus does. Jesus has, has authority, but he doesn't use it to lord over anybody. He actually uses um, his humility uh, to sacrifice his life for others. Now, I think, I think we need to be... Um, one of the thoughts I had as I was looking at this was, um, uh, in, in verse 16, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly. Right? And uh, I thought, when we look at this passage, it's probably more common to experience, let the message of Christ dwell among you reluctantly. Um, but I think if we can get thick into the richness of this, then it'll be good for all. It really will. And when we're reluctant and we hold back and we think, 
no, I'll only give if they give, or I'm waiting for them, or you know, it's it's, I'm, or I'm standing on my rights, or I'm entitled to this, that we end up pushing each other apart. And the Christian message is, give up your life for the sake of. And Jesus says, and I'm going to give it back a hundred times over. It's really radical. This is not, this is not um, conservative status quo, middle class living. This is like really radical trust God to do things differently to our culture. It mightn't have felt like we had to do things differently to the culture back in the 1950s. Uh, that was probably because we'd confused a lot of culture with Christianity. Now it's hard to confuse the two. And so it's calling us to be really serious about being Christian, which will mean being countercultural. How does that align with like, Yeah, so what, what about, where does it go to in terms of accountability for the husband's actions with the family? Yes, I think the husband is being entrusted with the responsibility for the loving care of his wife, uh, and that will include her Christian encouragement, and that'll be at the core of this in terms of the, the picture you've got there in Ephesians. And in Ephesians 6 verse 4, the, the husband or the father is given responsibility for training and instructing his children in the Lord. If he doesn't do that, then he's accountable before God. If he's not doing that, does that absolve the wife or mother? No. Like in 1 Peter 3, uh, there is an encouragement to wives whose husbands are not believers or it could be whose husbands are disobedient believers. In each case, uh, the attitude that the wife is encouraged to have is to win over the husband without words, but with the purity of her life. And I think the, the example that's there, I think, indicates the fact that when you're in such a close relationship, it's not going to be nagging on the gospel that's going to win over. It's going to be the evidence of a transformed life that just is consistent and shows itself to be genuine and real over time. And I think it, it's a very hard thing when you've got... Um, a marriage relationship and, and you don't have two Christians together. It's hard enough when you've got two Christians. Um, but when, when one's in one place and one's in the other, uh, there isn't that alignment of both looking to Christ to pull each other together in Christ. Jackie. So what, what did she say? The question is, how come you walk by six brothers? Jackie, I reckon, I've just got a hunch on that. My thinking is, it's probably because they love you so much. Alright, I'm going to stop there. The kids are coming back in.
guys, sorry, as the kids come in, let's pray. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thanks that we can meet together today. Thanks for the encouragement uh, in, in salt kids, uh, in teens, uh, here in church. Uh, and we pray that you'll help us to love you and to know your love for us and that that will flow over into our relationships with each other. 